A legal challenge to Governor David Ige's emergency orders and 14-day quarantine is being heard in federal court tomorrow. So the state hopes to get the issue behind it this week as it prepares to allow trans-Pacific travel come August 1st. We reached out to Sylvia Law. She's the co-director of New York University's Arthur Garfield Hayes Civil Liberties Program. She, along with University of Hawaii Law School Dean uh, Avi Soifer, penned an op-ed piece in the Star Advertiser in support of the state's efforts to require a 14-day quarantine. Since the suit was filed, the Justice Department asked the court to join the effort, which it felt was discriminatory to out-of-state residents. But the intervention so far isn't being allowed. Here's Sylvia Law, who just happens to be here in the islands this week. There's a lawsuit pending in the Hawaii District Court. There's going to be a hearing on Tuesday, tomorrow. But it's residents of California and I think Utah who want to come back to Hawaii and don't want to be subject to a quarantine. Our position is that we were initially writing before that lawsuit was filed, and our position is in support of Hawaii adopting a rule that says People should have a recent, reliable COVID negative test before they get on an airplane coming to Hawaii. That's really all we address. Now, Hawaii, the governor's office, seems to be saying that they want to offer a choice between having a recent, reliable negative test or 14 days of quarantine. And, uh, you know, I think we support that as well. But the suit in the federal court is just challenging the quarantine because a testing requirement has not yet been adopted in Hawaii. Right. And I think they are still trying to figure out how that's going to get structured, you know, because they're looking at what Alaska does. Yeah. And the government in seeking to intervene in the Hawaii case says, well, Hawaii is doing it a little bit differently than Alaska. Alaska requires a test before you get on the plane and after you get off the plane. Hawaii is not talking about that. But the issues are somewhat separate. It just seems so complicated now because so many different states are doing so many different things. Well, that's our federal system. States can do different things. And all that we in Hawaii can do is to govern Hawaii. You know, we can't tell other states what they should do. And so what's your sense as to where the uh, Justice Department's motion is going to go? I mean, uh, they were initially blocked. but uh, You know, I don't think, honestly, I don't think it's going to go any place. Um, I think that the uh, Trump-appointed judge, um, uh, Jill Otake, who I don't know, but she just dismissed it, saying, if you want to come in as a friend of the court at some later time, you can do that. But... Um, we're just going to hear this case as it was presented. Also, the Justice Department raised issues that the parties themselves had not not raised, and that's not normally allowed um, in this early stage. I know the uh, House Speaker here uh, issued a statement saying he thought that uh, what the U.S. Attorney's Office filed, you know, just smacks of politicizing the issue. Exactly. And I honestly, I think that the, the underlying suit is not a serious legal challenge. It's a political statement. I don't think that the plaintiffs in that suit are likely to be successful. Lots of states over the weekend, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut announced that they were going to require quarantine and not testing, but quarantine for people coming from hot states, and they list them. Um, Now, that's a different approach. That's something Hawaii could consider, but I think it's easier and makes more sense for Hawaii to just say, you know, if you want to come here, get a test. And if it's, it's more politically accessible, acceptable to say, or quarantine, that would also probably be helpful. So let's go down the road uh, a little bit. Let's say the judge uh, rules that the quarantine is unconstitutional. What might that mean for the people who were arrested early on for uh, violating the quarantine? They would have a very good claim, but I think the odds of the judge saying that the quarantine is unconstitutional are very slim. It was a reasonable thing for the state of Hawaii to do to require the quarantine, and if that's reversed, I doubt that people who were injured when it was in effect would be 
be able to get damages for a whole bunch of reasons. Public health is basically a responsibility of the state. And in this particular situation, the federal government has a lot of power to intervene and overrule the states if they want to do so. But they haven't done that. And um, they haven't done that. They haven't um, ramped up testing capacity, which they could do so much better than the individual states. They've just said they've left the problem to the states. And the federal government has also been inconsistent in the sense that some of the states that are in a hot, hot spots initially tried to ban people coming from New York when it was the hot spot. <laughs> and the federal government didn't lift a finger to intervene. Now that the worm has turned and the safer places are the places like New York and, and Hawaii, uh, the federal government is trying to intervene to say uh, those states can't ban people from states that have higher risks of, of COVID. You know, because you're from New York and you know more of the the traffic arteries, uh, you know, in and out of the city, you know, here in Hawaii, you know, we've got the airlines that we can just block. But is that trickier when, when you've got the turnpikes? <laughs> that is such a brilliant point because if New York says we're going to um, not allow people from the hot spot states and sets up an operation at the airport, you know, you just fly to Philadelphia and take the Metro Liner. You know, it's it, only Hawaii has the capacity to uh, protect the people of Hawaii by putting in relatively possible to implement measures at the airport. Only Hawaii. Even Alaska, you can drive. It, it would make an incremental difference if New York were to say people coming from extremely infected places have to either have a test or be quarantined. It would make a marginal difference, and I think New York could probably do that. Here, we can do a much more effective job and much more efficiently. There are challenges every place, and especially people who own homes in places that seek to impose a quarantine find it annoying that they can't go to their own house. But I think states can say, you know, if you're coming from a place with a high infection rate, you have to quarantine. We've done a really, New York has done a good job with a terrible problem. Hawaii has done a very good job, but, you know, we, it will change if we don't remain vigilant. That was Sylvia Law, a civil liberties law professor at NYU. Now it's time to hear from the BBC. Officials from the World Health Organization warn that global, uh, official global death numbers may be higher than data indicates, and doctors explore the possibility of treating recovered coronavirus patients for PTSD. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday, the 29th of June. I'm Jackie Leonard. The WHO warns the pandemic is far from over after figures show more than 500,000 people have died. Calls for former patients to be tested for PTSD. And the Liverpool manager asks football fans to behave themselves. In six months, the coronavirus outbreak, which started in China, has now left more than half a million people dead. The figure of 502,000 is from Johns Hopkins University, which is tracking the disease. The head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, says he fears the worst is yet to come, and he gave this warning. The virus still has a lot of room to move. The hard reality is this is not even close to being over. Although many countries have made some progress globally, the pandemic is actually speeding up. 128,000 people are now confirmed to have died with the virus in the United States, which is the worst-hit country in the world. Anthony Fauci, President Trump's top advisor on COVID-19, has said the recent spike in cases is mainly because people aren't social distancing or wearing face masks. He also said that relaxing lockdown rules to kickstart the economy in the South and West before there was evidence that infections were declining was a recipe for disaster. The governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, says in his state, more people under 40 have been infected. Well, we need to understand that COVID-19 has taken a very swift and very dangerous turn in Texas over just the past few weeks. The daily number of cases have gone from an average of about 2,000 to more than 5,000 per day.
The U.S. Vice President Mike Pence has urged Americans to wear face masks when they're asked to or when they can't socially distance. Laura Podesta from CBS News says this is a shift from Mr. Pence. It certainly is a change in course for the vice president to say wearing a mask is, is a good idea because we know for so long the vice president, the president, really anyone from the White House was deflecting any comment regarding a mask and really leaving it up to the governors to make decisions about mask wearing on a state-by-state -state basis. The authorities in Thailand are extending a state of emergency until the end of July to control the movement of people during the pandemic. But the campaign group Human Rights Watch has said the extension is being used as a cover for repressive action, as no coronavirus cases have been reported in Thailand for more than a month. Despite the extension, lockdown restrictions are being eased. On Wednesday, a ban on international flights will be lifted and bars, clubs and karaoke lounges can open their doors again. Mental health experts in Britain are calling for people recovering from the most serious cases of coronavirus to be tested for post-traumatic stress disorder. They estimate that 30% of former patients who were on ventilators in intensive care will have PTSD and a further 30% will suffer from anxiety disorders or depression. Our medical correspondent Fergus Walsh says COVID-19 affects people in different ways compared with other illnesses. For a start, people have been in intensive care. They don't have their families around them, which would normally be the case. When they do wake up, they see staff in full personal protective equipment, which can be you know, very destabilising and disturbing. So they want to ensure people are monitored. Otherwise, they fear there will be a sort of subsequent epidemic of mental health problems. People in Singapore who don't own a smartphone are being given contact tracing tokens which work like an app and use Bluetooth signals. Old people are the first recipients. Users who have been near someone infected with COVID-19 will then be contacted and followed up by a tracing officer. Jurgen Klopp, the manager of Liverpool, which won English football's Premier League title last week, has urged fans to celebrate the club's victory in a safe way. He's written a letter to the local paper, the Liverpool Echo, asking them to wait to paint the city red after thousands of people breached coronavirus social distancing rules. Here's Andy Swiss. Jurgen Klopp wrote that he loved the passion, the commitment and the faith of Liverpool's fans. What I did not love, he added though, was the scenes at the pier head on Friday. I am a human being and your passion is also my passion, he told supporters. But right now the important thing is that we do not have these kind of public gatherings. Thousands of fans had flocked to the city's waterfront following Liverpool's title triumph. 34 people were injured and the club condemned the conduct of some supporters as wholly unacceptable. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bank of Hawaii Foundation, a proud sponsor of Hawaii Community Foundation's Hawaii Resilience Fund, providing assistance to those hardest hit by the COVID-19 crisis. BOH.com. People often plan for pregnancy and expanding their families all the time, but are things different when this happens during a pandemic? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show when we talk with an expert about what it's like to have a baby during the times of coronavirus. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. You know, here in Hawaii, there are just a handful of boarding schools. The Big Island's Hawaii Preparatory Academy is one of them. We talked to head of school Patrick Phillips about the changes that are being made to accommodate the students who are traveling from abroad and who plan to spend the 2020-2021 school year here in the islands. There are no specific federal rules about boarding schools, but Phillips and others are talking with the State Health Department, the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, and others about best practices. In a given year, we'll have anywhere from 150 to 180 boarders. We have been able to go higher in years past, but we've actually taken some of those boarding rooms back uh, to make the, the other boarding rooms larger or to make them more, uh, you know, more suitable for, for students these days. Uh, it's different when, you know, in the 1960s and 1970s were very different <laughs> in, terms of in terms of dorm rooms. 
So in the dorms, are there are like two students to a room? I don't know. What's, yes. what's been the practice and what will be the practice going forward? Most of our rooms are doubles. Uh, and then we have uh, a handful of rooms that are singles. Usually those are for um, our older students, uh, particularly students who are in leadership positions, uh, you know, dorm prefects, that sort of thing. Um, going forward, and we had a few rooms. Uh, we had a few rooms that were triples. Um, we have uh, eliminated all triples. And so we will be going forward with uh, rooms that are singles and doubles. I'm not sure the exact mix yet. It depends on where we end up with uh, male and female students as to whether there'll be uh, most students will be in singles or most students will be in doubles, but it's going to be right around there. So we're having our students come in on that weekend of August 8th and 9th. Uh, and when they arrive, they'll they'll be tested. And we're we're actually going back and forth right now and uh, trying to decide whether those students will, uh, w- with the governor's recent uh, proclamation, whether those students will be tested uh, when they're before they board an airplane coming to us, or whether we'll be testing them uh, in that first day when they arrive. And so in our boarding population, it's about 45% are international students, about 45% are uh, domestic, typically from the mainland, and then the remainder are from either from uh, this island or from other islands, uh, so they're within the state. I see. So then that's why the testing would vary depending on where the students come from. Exactly, exactly. So we we know, based on what we're being able to, to find out right now, that the students coming from the mainland will be able to get testing in places like CVS or other pharmacies where they are. It's a little bit different when we start considering the students will be joining us from, from Germany and from Thailand and from other places like that. And so how is the rest of the school community affected? There'll be a lot of changes to school, um, but some of those will just be sort of habits. Um, so, for example, uh, we know that one of the things that's going to help uh, uh, keep down any spread of, of disease is increased hand washing. And so we've, we're actually installing on both of our campuses uh, some outdoor sinks to increase uh, opportunities for students to wash their hands with, with soap and water. We're also putting in hand sanitizer stations uh, so when they aren't able to get to a sink or, or perhaps they don't have uh, the, the full minute to wash their hands, they'll be able to go get some hand sanitizer. Uh, and, and in addition, we already have in our lower school, all of our classrooms have sinks in them. So we're building in procedures so that hand washing will become a regular routine in, in, in the day. Uh, it'll just be sort of a habit for those students. So that's uh, the sanitation part of it. Correct. What about the hallways? Will you have one-way halls, or how does that work? Yeah, we're very fortunate in that our buildings are um, almost all outside. We don't have many interior hallways except for in our dormitories. Um, So all of our lanai will become one way, and then the grass on the other side of the lanai will become the other direction. Um, uh, In our uh, lower and middle school, uh, we're actually housed in uh, what was uh, an old country inn, uh, and so uh, it has wide spaces outside the classrooms. But again, all of the stairways, all of the lanai, all of the passageways will, will be one direction only. Uh, we actually have the um, signage going up here and just after after Fourth of July uh, so that we'll be able to practice and make sure that it's going to work for all of our students. Okay, so you're making those physical changes to the campus before the students arrive. Correct. Are you doing anything for the summer? We have uh, postponed or canceled all of our summer, usual summer activities. We usually have uh, a large number of uh, camps and uh, we actually have some visitors who come and stay with us over the course of the summer, and none of that is happening, uh, which has been um, uh, disappointing from a revenue side, but from a let's get school ready, uh, it's been much easier for us because there's nobody to work around. And so our maintenance crews and uh, some of the outside vendors that we use have been able to get in and do their work much quicker and much more thoroughly than they normally could during the summer. Are you having to abandon the college prep classes that you might have offered, you know, because a lot of colleges now are kind of not requiring that. Right. We're, we're, not, we're not abandoning sort of the, the regular college prep uh, curriculum that we have. The piece that you know, colleges have changed is there many colleges have gone to test optional for our rising senior class, so for the class uh, that will graduate next uh, spring. And so some of our students may therefore choose not to take, say, the SAT or ACT where they may have chosen to take it in the past. Um, fortunately, um, you know, many of our students actually do very well on those tests, and so uh, and the students that I've talked with have said, even though the school that I'm really thinking is my first choice has gone test optional, I'm still going to take the test because if I do well, I can send it in. If I don't do well, I don't have to. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That, that's good strategy. But uh, would you normally have those SAT prep classes, let's say, this summer? 
we there would be some this summer optional for obviously if people want to to come and that, have that be part of their summer plans uh, and and we also have some people during the course of the year that will uh, offer tutoring services outside of our regular school plan and so that that may still happen we have not actually talked with those folks yet but you had to cancel the SAT prep that was planned for the summer yep every everything that we had on on summer everything uh, both academic and athletic has been uh, canceled with the exception of we actually are starting up next week our um, so we have a summer swim academy we have an outdoor swimming pool uh, and we've been able to uh, test out some different ways to make sure that uh, that's going to be safe for outside folks to come in and take their swim lessons and do their diving and those sorts of things. As we've approached the next school year, we know that we're not going to be in what I would call our traditional academic schedule. Uh, we know that we need to start off the school year with some modifications, and we talked about some of those sort of physical modifications, so uh, to allow for increased hand washing, uh, to allow more time between classes so that we can spread people out as they are transitioning from place to place. Um, and so we've actually uh, designed a different schedule, a modified schedule, that we'll be using, um, and it's different by lower middle school, uh, lower school, middle school, and upper school. Uh, and then knowing that that schedule had to be flexible so that an individual student or several students may need to be home and quarantining for, for two weeks at a time, uh, so allowing students to be able to be uh, both face-to-face face with their instructors and also uh, have some students who are home and who are uh, perhaps zooming in or, or using some other technologies to be a part of that class. And then also knowing that there could come a time where uh, there's an outbreak on this island and we need to um, have everybody stay home uh, with our boarding students staying in the dormitories and our day students staying in their houses. And so being able to go to a fully online environment. So we do anticipate sort of this uh, back and forth between face-to-face and online. And we've, we've designed a, a schedule, an academic schedule, to allow for that to happen. We've learned a lot of lessons, I think, from this spring. We, we were able to get feedback from our students, uh, from our parents, and from our faculty, and to use that to design an online uh, environment that will be, I think, much more robust for people. One of the smaller schools, private schools that we talked to, said that they were putting up physical barriers. Hongguanji has shower curtains and PVC pipes. They've been very right. creative. Right. <laughs> Are you doing anything like that? We do. There, there's a possibility in our lower school of using some uh, physical barriers just because um, we have much larger rooms, and so we could have a, a, a fair number of students in those rooms still spread out, but we may want to create some barriers between uh, certain areas so that there could be sort of sectioning off of those classes. In our other classrooms, in our classrooms in our middle and upper school, we will be reducing the numbers, but not by that much. Um, mm. Our average class size uh, is somewhere between 14 and 15, depending on the year. And so we're, we're looking at bringing those down to between 10 and 12 in our classrooms, uh, and also spreading out and using some other spaces that are not typically used as classrooms. Um, so for example, we're fortunate on our upper campus to have a student union, uh, which during the day typically serves as a place for students to uh, relax, to, to read a book, to hang out, uh, and it has a, sm- a small school store in it. Uh, we'll be using that space as a place to have um, student desk and have that be a place where a study hall may happen. So we're, we're pulling in places that maybe weren't typically used uh, during the academic day as an academic space, but those will all now be used in that in that format. Right, but you've got that you've got that flexibility of space at least. Exactly. Yeah, yeah we're okay. we're very fortunate. You know, talking with peer schools, particularly on the mainland, who you know they had no option to get kids outside. Uh, maybe they were a school in a big city. Um, I'm thinking about some of the schools I've seen in New York City in particular. They don't have outdoor spaces to move into. And they also have the the added drawback of they're all using recycled air. They all have HVAC. In some cases, they don't have windows that even open. Mm. Um, And and here, of course, we have windows that open all the time. Fresh air. Uh, Fresh (laughs) air. It's flowing right through. The doors are open. The windows are open. And and, uh, we're hoping that that gives us an advantage in keeping people healthy. And clarify the policy then on masks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, we're, we're still working the details out on that. However, we are asking that all students and all faculty and all staff uh, bring a clean mask with them every day. Uh, so we are telling students, uh, for example, for our boarding students, to arrive uh, when they come to school with five to seven masks that they can use throughout the week uh, so that they can uh, then clean them on a weekly basis. Um, so we are then figuring out where exactly we want to say masks are required and where masks will be optional for students. Uh, so in an area, for 
example, where a mask would be optional would be, uh, as you can imagine, recess in our lower school. Uh, we are uh, not likely to require masks during recess, but if a child wants to wear it there, that would be fine too. Uh, in other spaces, when uh, I'm thinking about in our upper school, when students might be working together on a chemistry project, it may be that they are required to wear it during that period of time when, they're, when they have to operate in a face-to-face -face environment uh, closer than the CDC guidelines would recommend. Okay, and then uh, as far as like offerings like chorus and band, have you had to cancel any of that, or are you modifying? We, we haven't canceled any of those. We yeah. are looking to modify those. So again, right. chorus is a great one, right? We've all heard the story of, right. uh, I think it was the, uh, the choir practice yep. at a church where everyone Everybody came down with COVID-19 uh, because they're singing and you're putting all that, that out into the environment and then breathing that in. And so we are looking at um, how we can operate that safely. Is that going to be everybody in chorus has a, uh, has a mask on the whole time? Uh, again, uh, where we are, I'm looking out at, at a beautiful sunny day. Could, we, could they move outside and have that outside and that would be safe? So we're investigating that with the help of some medical professionals. We have to keep reminding each other that no one thing is going to be the silver bullet, right? Wearing masks alone is not going to do it. Washing hands is not going to do it. Spreading students out in the classrooms is not going to do it. Um, taking daily temperature checks, which is something we'll be doing as well as students arrive to school. Those things individually, none of them are going to be 100%. But if we add them all up, and we're getting closer and closer to being able to say that we're, we're keeping our community as healthy as possible. Um, and we know that, that all of these different pieces, as we pull them together, uh, again, won't prevent uh, perhaps an infection for ha from happening in our community, but it'll help us then uh, track it down when and if it does happen. That was Patrick Phillips with the Hawaii Preparatory Academy on the Big Island talking about its boarding school plans and other changes that it's making to deal with the pandemic come August. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Learn seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com. News organizations have always relied on police sources for information. But what happens when those sources are wrong? Local news in New York City don't really have time to check the story. They're just being told cops were intentionally poisoned at a Shake Shack. I mean, that story tells itself. Shame it didn't fact check itself. Join us for this week's On the Media from WNYC. This evening at 7, following The Body Show. Honolulu Civil Beat's Reality Check looks at how the racial disparity of COVID-19 cases is playing out here in Hawaii. Reporter Anita Hofschneider joins us today. Good morning, Anita. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I remember early on reporters were pressing the health department about not having the breakdown, the ethnic breakdown of the cases. Uh, but now that's changed. Yes. So there was also some concern from OHA, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, where they saw disparities affecting the NHPI category or NHOPI category, and they wanted a breakdown to know, you know exactly what was happening with the Native Hawaiian community. Because, as you know, there's such a diversity within the broader Pacific Islander community, and you know the Hawaiian community and its needs are, are different from other Pacific Islander communities like Marshallese or Chukis or Samoan and whatnot. So Department of Health did end up um, disaggregating, to some extent, the race and ethnic data, and so we were able to see that actually Native Hawaiians are not experiencing a, a disproportionately high rate of COVID-19, but for the category of um, all other Pacific Islanders, they are. And so the most recent data that came out on Friday found that um, other Pacific Islanders make up 23% of Hawaii's COVID-19 cases. That's almost a quarter even though the State Department of Health says they only represent about 4% of the population. So it's pretty striking. So uh, what did Dr. Sarah Park have to say about that? She was saying she actually wasn't surprised because there was uh, another outbreak 
of another respiratory disease not long ago, uh, mumps, and it you know it did a, a strongly affect the Pacific Islander community. And she said one of the challenges with respiratory diseases is it helps in our, if you have you know different rooms in your house to self isolate. But if you live in a in a large family that like is a multi generational family or where people are sharing you know rooms, you can't really follow the CDC advice of just closing you know the door to your room and only having your own bathroom. That's just not practical for a lot of people. And so she was saying that she, you know, has been concerned that it would affect the Pacific Islander community, especially to one other thing to know is a lot of people are working in essential jobs or frontline jobs where they don't have the option of working from home like you or I. They have to be able to go in. They have to interface with people. Um, and so, you know, these are people working in restaurants, people, um, you know, working in security, people working um, in healthcare. People, a lot of people are. Um, housekeepers, although we know that um, you know the hotel industry is you know not not what it used to be, but they're either suffering from unemployment and having trouble accessing unemployment uh, benefits, or they might still be working and be at more exposed and more at risk to catching the virus. Um, so unfortunately, it's it's not a shocking finding, but I thought the disparity was still pretty significant. You know, 23% compared to 4% is huge and far worse than any other disparity. Um, the Filipino community also is experiencing a disparity. They make up about 16% of the population, but more than 20% of um, cases. But it's just not as extreme as what the you know Pacific Islander community is facing. Now, I know uh, the Hotel Workers Union is stepping up uh, increased testing this weekend for some of its members, you know, who are... Um, uh, a large, to a large degree, uh, Filipino workers. Uh, what else is the community doing to help, um, you know, the Pacific Island uh, groups that are affected? Yeah, it's worth noting, you know, that this disparity affecting Pacific Islanders is actually being seen in many states, um, and nationally and locally, uh, Pacific Islander groups have been organizing and coming together to try to create their own task force. So, for example, there's a Marshallese COVID-19 task force, and there's a Hawaii Pacific Islander. Um, a task force trying to figure out how they can target resources and help people. But it's definitely a challenge. You know, I was speaking to somebody who was one of the leaders of the Pacific Islander Task Force here, and she was saying, you know, people are afraid to go to the doctor, so she suggested telehealth. But that doesn't work if you don't have Wi Fi at home or if you don't have a computer. And so these are, you know, real challenges that it's going to take a while to try to figure out. All right. Well, thanks so much, Anita. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Chat. You can read her full story at civilbeat.org. Earlier this month, the U.S. Supreme Court voted 5-4, to four, rejecting the Trump administration's attempt to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, also known as DACA. The program has stopped the deportation of 700,000 undocumented young adults. In Hawaii, there are an estimated 4,000 Dreamers and over 800 Hawaii residents who have been granted DACA status over the last five years. Some have been helped with the legal clinic the Honolulu-based nonprofit, which provides free to low-cost immigration legal services, education, and advocacy. One of those is Bree, a DACA recipient from a Latin American country who asked that we not use her full name, as doing so could put her family at risk. She spoke to Jason Ubai, who's with The Conversation, about being a DACA recipient. I have been living in the United States since I was five years old. I came to Hawaii about three years ago to attend college here. My family came to the United States to pursue opportunity and to give me a better life, just like many parents want for their children. When I was in high school, I actually found out that I was undocumented. A lot of my friends were getting ready to apply for driver's license and to get their first jobs. And I realized that I couldn't do that quite yet. So this led to me having conversations with my mom and my family about our immigration status in this country and how we're going to live with that. And like many families, my, my family endured many struggles. There was a point, though, that I realized that a lot of my experiences were connected to my immigration status and politics. For example, growing up, we really didn't have stability. 
I attended about six different schools before I was 11, which is a lot of schools for a child to have to adapt to. And this was because my parents worked in the dairy and fields in Central California, and their employers saw them, those immigrant workers, as dispensable, even though they were essentially the foundation of one of the biggest economies in California. But the work was so uncertain that oftentimes we just had to get up and move to the next place where my parents could find work. And that's really how I ended up going to so many schools at a young age and having to start over so much when I was younger. But when I was old enough to understand really the implications of my immigration status, my parents talked to me about the possibility of my family being separated if I if we ever had any encounters with ICE. And that was very daunting for me to hear as, you know, a, a teenage child. I, ICE was rarely in my town. But when I when I knew that they were in town, you know, and I would receive a call from one of my parents or any family members, my my heart would really start racing. And so, yeah, those are just some of my experiences, you know, living here in the United States and my experiences as a young immigrant. Why did you decide to move to Hawaii and uh, attend the school here? Well, I decided to move here because originally I wanted to study marine biology. And the area where I lived in in, the, in California was very conservative and their disdain for immigrants was very obvious. And I just felt very unwelcome there. Um, and I felt like I couldn't really thrive in a place like that, and I couldn't really pursue higher goals in a place like that. And coming here to Hawaii has really opened up so many opportunities for me, and it has allowed me to really contribute more to my community than I was able to um, in the town where I grew up. Coming to Hawaii for school was different because California does have more opportunities for DACA recipients when it comes to financial aid and things like that. However, Recently, Amy Agbayani, who is a board member of the legal clinic, worked on a, a policy that allowed DACA recipients to receive resident tuition so we wouldn't have to be considered out-of-state students because we have been living in the United States for most of our lives. And so that, that made college a little bit more affordable for me. I do think that there's a long ways to go in Hawaii for DACA recipients, but I'm glad to be here and be part of those efforts. DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival, and it is a United States policy that allows some individuals that were brought to the country as children to work legally and to be protected from deportation. But this is for a two-year period only. We DACA recipients have to pay about $500 every two years to reapply for the status so that we can continue to work legally and to be protected from deportation for two years. In order to be eligible for this program, we have to fulfill a very extensive list of requirements, um, which include being in the United States before your 16th birthday, having to have lived in the United States since June 15 of 2007. We have to have graduated or received a GED or be currently in school, or we have to be a um, discharged, um, an honorably discharged veteran of the Coast Guard or Armed Forces. We also have to have a very clean record. People often would say, will say that, you know, we're criminals and, you know, just make up these things. But in reality, we have to have a very clean record in order to be eligible for something like this. Um, and we have to go through all of this just to receive a two-year deferral from deportation and a two-year work permit, essentially. We have to reapply every two years. And then um, we never know when our next opportunity to reapply will be because DACA is frequently uh, is being threatened. So we never know when we're going to, if we're going to be able to renew or not. But yes, we do have to plan to renew every two years. Um, and we have to keep a good record and all of those things still have to be fulfilled every time you renew. So there was a recent Supreme Court ruling on DACA. I mean, how did you feel when this uh, ruling came down to strike down the Trump administration's challenge to the program? Well, leading up to the decision, I was actually very worried, you know, it was constant, constantly looming over just my life. Because, you know, this status, this DACA status, really allows me to do so much in my community and just in my personal life, professionally, all of those things. And if that were to be taken away, it would really just impact my whole life and turn it upside down. So when 
I found out about the decision. I was just really ecstatic. I was so, um, I, I really thought it could go either way, but thankfully the majority of the Supreme Court voted in favor of DACA. And I found out about the news at about 4 a.m. And I was able to really just sigh in relief because my status is secure and, you know, my family will have one less stressor for the time being. And that decision also means that I will be able to continue working and helping out in my community here in Oahu. Now, I know the ruling itself was focused on the administrative aspects of how it came about, so it did leave the door open for future challenges. Can you tell me what are your concerns about that and how how can this become more of a permanent uh, law and program? Yes, um, I believe right after um, the decision came out, the administrator, the president, did put out, you know, he tweeted saying that he was going to try to dismantle DACA again. And I feel like a lot of us DACA recipients at this point are so used to the uncertainty and used to, you know, constantly fighting to keep DACA in place. So, you know, we had a sigh of relief. It was a temporary win, but we know what to expect. We know that we're always going to have to keep fighting for DACA, which is why a lot of us are actually fighting to pass the DREAM Act, which is a policy or is a law that will actually give us a path to citizenship. So DACA is temporary. It only allows us to have a work permit for two years, and it gives us a two-year deferral from deportation. But with the DREAM Act, HR 6, that would allow us to actually apply for citizenship and be able to, you know, have a little bit more stability in this country. What do you think people should know if, you know, they, they don't agree with this program and want to see it uh, dismantled? Well, what I've heard from, you know, and people is that they there's a lot of misconceptions around DACA. They believe that we are just taking benefits from the American people. They believe that we're just here to take jobs or to receive benefits, but none of that is true. Um, we're actually taxpayers ourselves. We contribute to society just like anybody else. We're teachers, we're healthcare workers. Um, we contribute to our communities in any way that we can. And we're also paying taxes just like anybody else. You know, um, the IRS doesn't discriminate when it comes to when it comes to money. So they're, they're taking money from all of us. Just So we're doing our part just like anybody else is doing. And I think that a lot of people are against DACA or just immigrants in general because they don't understand that we're also contributing just like anybody else. You've been hearing from Bree, a DACA recipient now living in Hawaii. For immigrants looking for legal resources, visit our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. This morning on our Stargazer segment, we learned that astronomers put on their X-ray specs to uncover new data about the dimming star known as Betelgeuse. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny, very troubled planet, And as usual, we are fortunate to have the gifts of astronomer Christopher Phillips to help guide us through that. We've got him on the line right now. Chris, welcome back. What do you have in your bag of tricks this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Jupiter and Saturn in the evening sky. They both rise in the east around 8 p.m. The moon this week is passing through its full phase, and so stargazing for those faint objects in the heavens will be rather challenging. There is something else that has been challenging for astronomers, and that's the mysteriously dimming star known as Betelgeuse. Yes, and we are going to revisit that mystery this week. Betelgeuse, which we know here in Hawaii as Kaunuakoko, this star has been decreasing quite dramatically in brightness over the past few years, and has even been noticed by naked-eye astronomers. The reason for this darkening has remained the subject of much speculation in the scientific community, until now. New data, obtained by the James Clark Maxwell Telescope atop Mauna Kea, has detected significant star spot activity on the surface of this red supergiant star. And this is pretty interesting because a lot of folks thought it was dust clouds making that happen. So how'd they make the distinction? Well, the JCMT is capable of observing the universe in the sub-millimeter part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It doesn't see visible light like other optical telescopes. 
submillimeter light is not obscured by gas and dust. Mm. So we're able to observe the goings-on inside gas clouds, galactic nuclei, and dusty stars. So to put it in another way, it's kind of like X-ray specs to look through material. Exactly, except in this case, it's submillimeter light and not X-ray light. Also, the JCMT is a rather large eye at 15 meters in diameter, so it can observe objects in high resolution that would normally be obscured from view. And let's talk about those star spots. They must be pretty big to cause that dimming, huh? Bigger than the ones, the uh, sunspots on our sun? Yes, they are colossal. They cover between 50 to 70 percent of the star's surface. These regions reduce the overall intensity of flux from the star and cause it to dim in visible light. Does that mean this is way bigger than that dust cloud that's coming over from Africa? Way bigger. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll keep watching this thing, huh, for more developments over the next uh, few years, I guess it would be. Yes. JCMT, with its unique capabilities, will be able to keep us well informed on the health of Kauluakoko. Stargazer here with uh, Christopher Phillips, as usual. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and we keep Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's with the White House COVID Task Force, is back in the headlines. And one person who is keenly watching is pre-med student Chloe Talano. She's a Farrington High School graduate studying at Chaminade University who happened to snag a prestigious two-year fellowship in the Vaccine Research Center at the National Institute of Health of, of Allergies and Infectious Disease in Bethesda, Maryland. Talana is currently visiting family in Texas, a state which is seeing its COVID cases spike following the relaxation of quarantine restrictions. She's eager to get to work studying infectious diseases and watching up close the work underway to battle this pandemic. It's something that I'm really passionate about and something that I really want to do in the future. That's why when I got that um, acceptance, I was ecstatic and I just couldn't believe it because I actually applied to several programs and most of them did not get back to me and I was hoping to get into at least one program this year. I've always wanted to do infectious diseases. It doesn't matter if it's HIV, coronavirus or anything. Mostly I'm interested in infectious disease that are emerging or like current infectious disease that are really hard to um, to study and find a cure for. Well, this is something that is certainly developing very fast. And, you know, everybody's saying we are learning so much in such a compressed time. Yeah, if you compare it from before where we never had these technologies that we're using today, we would have been way behind to figuring out what this type of virus is, what virulence factor it can have for people, like what effect does it have. But now with all the technologies that we have and recent discoveries about coronaviruses, we're able to find new ways to, you know, fight up the infection and figure out ways to find a cure in the future. Well, I think working in that office, though, you're going to have a front row seat particularly with what's going on with this pandemic and how they're, you know, analyzing the best strategies going forward. Yeah, definitely, because my lab, my lab doesn't just work in HIV. We work in different types of viruses, mostly emerging and current ones. And now with the coronavirus going on, they added that in the line of study as well. But they've always been studying coronaviruses too because of what happened in the SARS. When do you report to work? I report to work on the 17th of August. It's like I have this natural instinct of helping people and providing care for people who are in need. And it started from there. I always wanted to become a doctor. So when I got the Chaminade, I was like, okay, I'm going to start doing what I can and what I need to do to get into medical school. And then one of the requirements that, that were needed to get into medical school was to do research. And I never um, heard of research before. Like I, di I didn't know how it goes, what's the format or anything like that. But then I was I was eager to find that research, um, that experience. Research is, is an important aspect of um, medical school application as well. And so I asked my one of my biology professors at that time if he knows someone who does um, research. 
And at first, he wanted to tell me to go to UH and find research experience there because UH is a research school. And But I told him I'd like to stay at Chaminade because I go to school here. It's easier for me. And it turns out that he does research too. So I was able to get into his um, research um, lab and work with his project, which is actually in cancer metabolism, which is very far from what I wanted to do, which is infectious disease. But from that, I was able to find the beauty and just how research is very important in medicine. Because without research, we wouldn't be able to find new ways to cure a disease or determine how does a disease affect a human being. So research is, to me, a fundamental aspect of medicine. So because of that, I was, I was able to build this strong love for research. And with that, I was able to decide what I wanted to do in the future, and I wanted to do an MD-PhD. And then you mentioned that you were over at John Hopkins for a program there as well. I was there for a summer internship. That was actually the very first summer internship that I ever did. And the first project that I had was about finding ways to, to help patients who have HIV to control their viral infection. So is there anybody in your family that has a background in medicine? My parents never went to college, but my sister actually graduated from nursing at Chaminade. And she's a nurse right now. She's a registered nurse in some, here in San Antonio. I, I noticed that a lot of the establishment are slowly opening up and um, the governor actually lifted mandatory quarantine for travelers. When I got here, I was actually supposed to supposed to do a mandatory quarantine, but I was doing it for a good week. But eventually the governor decided to remove the um, mandatory quarantine and I was able to just um, go out mm-hmm. within that week. Okay. Yeah, but I think San Antonio in general is slowly opening up. And what about where you're going to be doing your internship in uh, Bethesda? That I do not know currently, but I know that NIH is doing um, different phases and um, making sure that people who are entering the lab are um, are protected as well, because especially in my lab, because the lab that we, um, the building for um, specifically that where, that my lab, that where my lab is, is, is literally a floor above the COVID-19 um, Team. And since this is the Vaccine Research Center, they're doing a lot of work on um, COVID right now as well. So they're trying to limit a lot of people going into the lab so that exposure is limited. Wow. So so that'll be really fascinating for you to be there right in the thick of it. I know. Yeah, it'll be exciting. That was Chloe Talana, a pre-med student at Chaminade University who will be bound for the East Coast this fall to study infectious diseases under a two-year program at the National Institutes of Health in Dr. Anthony Fauci's office. And that does it for today. Tomorrow we hear more about the violations with Hawaii, uh, Hawaii's stay-at-home orders. Do you have a story about that you want to share? Call or talk back line. You can tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. You can find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Thank you.